Welcome back to the Happily Ever Haunted podcast. I'm Bailey. And I'm Milton. And this is the podcast where we tell you stories of the strange and unusual. Back again. Number two. <laughs> yeah. Did you go listen to episode number one? Um, okay, so it occurred to me that on episode number one, we didn't really introduce ourselves, so I feel like we should probably do that, eh? Yeah, that's probably a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, like I said, I'm Bailey, and that's my husband, Milton, and we've been married a little less than a year. Yes. Yeah. But we've been putting up with each other's shit for like six years. Yeah. We've been <laughs> together for a long time. So long. So long. Um, yeah, and we live in Texas, and we have... A dog and a cat. Uh, we love them both equally. Do we though? Um, well, <laughs> hold on. Correction. They both love Bailey equally. <laughs> um, they're both wishy-washy on me. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's that's great. <laughs> but yeah, but we thought we would introduce ourselves a little bit, just a little. Yeah. Let you in on our lives a little bit. <laughs> so, hope the quarantine is going well for you so far. Yeah, and we hope that uh as this podcast comes along, um, you know, you guys listen to us and it's kind of relief from all of the craziness that's happening right now because 2020 is just an absolute mess. It's wild. But we hope that this is a light in the midst of all the craziness. All right. You ready to jump in? I am so ready. I'm so excited for this. He hasn't shut up uh, about it. Yeah, I haven't because I found this story and uh, it's amazing um i it's about aliens oh really it is about aliens. so i don't he doesn't know what i'm covering unless he's been shoulder surfing and i don't know what he's covering because my mom was so generous and let us use her assisting help <laughs> yeah we use her as a middleman yeah so kinda, we message her yeah. what we're doing and if one of us is doing each other's episodes she's gonna be like no maybe you should try again <laughs> so yeah. Thanks, Bevy. Yes, shout out to Bev. She's the best. But yeah, I'm super excited. Um, I've always believed that aliens are real uh, because there's no way that we're the only beings in the universe. And so I definitely wanted to cover an alien story within our first few episodes. And you've done it. And yeah, I've done it. Scratch <laughs> it off the bucket list. I can die a happy man now. Bye. <laughs> so today... I am going to be covering the Brooklyn Bridge abduction. So the <laughs> prepare for all of the X-Files references. Just letting you all know now. Uh, the Brooklyn Bridge abduction takes place on the night of November 30th, 1989. The story is captured by author and UFO researcher Bud Hopkins in his book Witnessed. The victim of the abduction was a woman named Linda Napolitano, who uses the pseudonym Linda Cortile in the book. Napolitano. <laughs> yeah, I always wanted to be like, ah, Napolitano. Like, just <laughs> every time I saw the name. According to Linda, her abduction is not her first encounter with the third kind. No oh, fuck. So 13 years earlier, Linda reached out to Bud after reading his New York Times bestseller, Intruders. She wrote a letter to him telling, telling a story about an unusual bump next to her nose. Linda went to the doctor to have this examined, and the doctor claimed it was the result of nasal surgery. Oh. The interesting thing was that Linda never had nasal surgery, and her mother said the same thing. 
Linda then Did she get a second opinion though? Uh I'm not sure. But I mean, if it never happened, why why would it be there? You know? No, I mean, but I have a bump on my nose. I mean, maybe we should go see if you got abducted by aliens. I'm pretty sure that didn't happen. I mean, you out in the country. That's where they go. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) So, for for context, Bailey grew up in a very small rural Texas. Only kind of. That's where my dad's from. My mom's from Dallas. Right. But for most of her adolescence, she was in rural Texas. So, uh so yeah, so if anyone's gonna be abducted by aliens, it's definitely gonna be no. I, I wear my <laughs> aluminum foil hat with my mask. <laughs> mask, aluminum foil hat, check. There check. you go. Protection from all things. You got protection. <laughs> <laughs> Linda, Linda then met Bud Hopkins and joined his abductee support group. The morning following her second abduction, Linda Napolitano calls Bud Hopkins to describe the incident. She claims that in the early morning hours of November 30th, 1989, she was carried out of the bedroom of her 12th floor Manhattan apartment. See, oh, oh, it always happens in the country. <laughs> Meanwhile, she's in like middle of Manhattan. It's, yeah, this is true. This is true. Contradicting myself from the jump. Wow. Um, she claimed that a blue light came into the room and levitated her out of the, her bed and through the, through the window of her apartment. She was escorted to an UFO by three aliens, and from there, they proceeded to perform medical procedures on her. Uh, the if ali- I was to get abducted right now, I would go. Oh, yeah? Yeah, I'd be like, yeah, let's, let's get far, far away from this right now. Understandable. <laughs> like, like, take me away, fam. Yeah, <laughs> let go. Uh, the aliens were described as your prototypical greys, so, uh, you know, kind of humanoid aliens with big head, grayish skin tone, kind of big eyes. After the abduction, Linda could not remember what happened. So the case was pieced together by the means of regressive hypnosis and the actual passing of time as her mind began to heal herself. Linda was able to describe some of her own some of her abduction in her own words. Look, I don't know if I uh, I don't know if I could trust this though cuz I have some memories and I legit asked my mom and my sisters, I'm like, did this really happen or was it just a dream? <laughs> <laughs> like from when I was a kid. Right. Uh, So from her words, quote, I'm standing up on nothing and they take me out all the way up, way above the building. Oh, I hope I don't fall. The UFO opens up almost like a clam and then I'm inside. I see benches similar to regular benches and they're bringing me down a hallway. Doors open like sliding doors. Inside are all these lights and buttons and a big long table. However, what also helped piece the story together and give it credibility was also eyewitness reports. In the book, Witness, Bud Hopkins begins the first chapter of the book with a letter he received from two police officers. The two officers witnessed the abduction and turned to Hopkins in hopes he will investigate the matter, unbeknownst to them that Hopkins was already aware of the abduction. So I actually have the uh, the letter here, and so I'm going to read that real quick. So it says, Dear Mr. Hopkins, my partner and I are police officers. We have been in a serious dilemma because of our, because of our strict profession and our lack of knowledge on this subject. We didn't know what to do or who to turn to and hadn't done so until recently. We searched the bookstores, 
over and came up with you. There was an address in your book, Intruders, but it was through your publishers. In turn, we let our fingers do the walking through the white pages. Much to our surprise, there you were. We're hoping that you are correct, but you are the correct Bud Hopkins. So here it goes. One early morning, about 3, 3.30 a.m. in late November 1989, we sat in our patrol car under, underneath the elevated FDR drive on South Street and Catherine Slip, observing the surroundings ahead. Sitting on the passenger side of our vehicle, I reached into my shirt pocket for a stick of gum. As I opened it up, I looked down at the silver wrapping that was left in my hand and saw it reflecting a firelight fire light type of reddish glow. I looked up through the windshield to see where it was coming from, and there it was, a strange oval hover, hovering over the top of an apartment building two or three blocks up from where we were sitting. We don't know where it came from. Its, its lights turned from a bright reddish orange to a very bright whitish blue coming out of the bottom of it and moved out away from the building and lowered itself to an apartment window just below. I yelled for my partner who was sitting beside me behind the wheel of the patrol car and he was just excited as I was. I had to be sure of what I was seeing so I went into the glove compartment to get a pair of binoculars. We grabbed hold of each other and we were going out of the car. But what could we do for that poor little girl or woman wearing a full white nightgown? She was floating in midair in the bright beamish, bright beam of whitish blue light, looking like an angel. She was then brought into the bottom of that very large oval, about three quarters the size of the building across. This poor person was escorted out of her window. I don't know if she was willing or not. I don't think so, because it seemed as though she was being escorted up into this thing by three ugly but smaller human-like creatures, one above her and two below. They seemed to be in charge. On top of our fear of getting involved, we were also carrying a load of guilt because we didn't help her and we didn't know what's become of her. After she was escorted up and in, the oval turned reddish-orange again and whisked away, coming in our direction above us. It must have flown over the FDR drive while we were sitting underneath it. It then plunged into the river behind us, not far from Pier 17, behind the Brooklyn Bridge. Someone else had to see what happened that morning. I know what we saw and we'll never forget it. Mr. Hopkins, the oval never came up from under the river. It's possible that it could have after we drove away about 45 minutes later. We would have stayed longer, but we couldn't ignore our radio call any longer. The guilt is brutal, more so than the fear we felt when we witnessed this terrible encounter. The guilt has lingered in the guilt has lingered into today, and we find it difficult living with ourselves. My partner and I have been debating for 14 or 15 months if we should seek her out. We know the building and we know which window she came out of. Perhaps she was just a figment of our imagination. If she isn't, is she alive and well? We have to know. We're feeling much better now that we've had the chance to tell someone else other than ourselves. We wish to stay anonymous for the time being on an account of our profession. If we should decide to seek this person out and she may very well value her privacy as we do and we respect that, we'll contact you again with further information if we do find her and I hope we do. Many thanks, police officers, Dan and Richard. So what do you think about that letter? <laughs>
Like, I want to know why they want to stay anonymous. Because okay. I want I have more questions. Because, uh, I mean, they said because of their profession. Because, I mean, they're they're cops. And so. Well, how are you going to? I would just go back to that apartment that they saw her out of and just knock and be like, hey, what's up? <laughs> oh, wrong apartment. Interesting that you said that. I'll get to that a little bit later. There would be more witnesses that would come forward and cooperate the abduction as well. A woman that was on the book, the Brooklyn Bridge at the time of the abduction gave a very detailed description of the events from her perspective. Janet Kimball, which is a pseudonym, had been attending a retirement party in Brooklyn for her ailing uh, for her ailing boss. This party lasted until the early hours of November 30th, 1989. Janet intended to take the FDR drive to get back home. To reach it, she had to cross the Brooklyn Bridge west towards Manhattan. She was more than halfway across the bridge. None of this sounds like it's in the country, by the way. <laughs> she was more than halfway across the bridge, across the Brooklyn Bridge, when her car engine died and slowed to a dead stop. Ew, gross, no. The headlights on her car then dimmed and went out, and the bridge lights, uh, the bridge lights lighting the roadway dimmed. Janet looked in her rearview mirror to see if any other cars were coming, which they were. She was concerned about this because her her halted car was not readily visible given the apparent power outages. The cars behind her, however, also slowed to a stop and their headlights dimmed and went out too. <gasps> Alarmed. The UFOs made all the batteries leak. Alarmed, Janet took a cigarette lighter out of her purse and lit it so she could see her watch. The time was 3.16 a.m. But it wasn't. Her watch stopped at that point. From the corner of her right eye, through the front passenger side window of her car, she saw what she initially thought was a building on fire in Manhattan. The whole sky lit up so brightly that she had to shield her eyes. Janet was so shocked to see that it was actually a large, red and white, brightly lit object hovering by an apartment building. Janet then saw... <laughs> The red color of the craft subdued and a bright white light come out from underneath it. She then saw what she described as four balls tum tumbling out of one of the apartment windows, the second window from the left, one after the other. The four balls then unrolled simultaneously into vertical standing positions in midair. Janet described them as four children, three sickly looking rickets, ricket-stricken children, and one slightly taller, normal girl child who was wearing a white nightgown. Oh. They appeared smaller like children to Janet, given the distance from, uh, from which she was observing them. I could see how aliens would look like sick sickly people, though. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> when Janet saw this, she thought a movie was being made. More notably... A UN diplomat also witnessed the abduction. Oh, one of those picture films? <laughs> <laughs> one of those moving pictures? <laughs> uh, Javier Perez de Cuellar was a Peruvian diplomat, and the hope was that he would give a public account of the abduction in order to give the story maximum credibility. However, Cuellar would only give his account in private and requested that Hopkins did not publicly release that account. Despite all of the eyewitness accounts and personal accounts from Linda Napolitano, there are still many skeptics of the abduction. 
there was actually a report designed to debunk the whole abduction titled A Critique of Bud Hopkins' Case of the UFO Abduction of Linda Napolitano by Joseph J. Stefula, Richard D. Butler, and George P. Hansen. Do you know how mad I would be if someone wrote a thing, or like, debunked the thing? It was like, a critique of Bailey's, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. <laughs> I'd be so upset. I would not stop talking about it for at least two years. Yeah, they were, they, uh, they were like, here for it. They were just like, all right, this is bullshit. This is a critique of it. Yeah. <laughs> like, I wouldn't know whether to be, like, mad or have my feelings hurt. All right. <laughs> The report cites the lack of face-to-face interviews with the witnesses of the abduction, especially after over a year had passed since the abduction when the accounts were given. It also cites that there is no evidence to suggest that officers Dan and Richard are real, and it is also odd that they contacted Hopkins first instead of going to Linda first since they knew where she lived. The authors of the report- They could just do a knock and talk. Yeah, and that that's kind of like what they were saying, because um, you know they're they're cops. They have the ability and the authority to go to someone's door and it not be like weird. weird. Yeah, and like they saw where where everything happened. So why didn't they go up and talk to her at that moment, or like the day after, or anything like that? Like they knew exactly where she because was because they're not real. I don't know, maybe. the authors of the report also conducted their own investigation and suggested that there should have been more witnesses if the abduction actually happened the reason for this is because a couple of blocks away from the apartment building was a loading dock for the new york post which is heavily used around the time of the abduction however all of the people who were interviewed did not see anything out of the ordinary on the night of question The report also suggests that Bud Hopkins did not do his due diligence since he did not interview the security guards that were there that night. So the apartment building supposedly has 24 hour security. And and there was no accounts from the security guards that was the security guards that were working that night in regards to, you know, obviously, hey, is there an alien above your building the other day? (laughs) So Despite the criticism, the Brooklyn Bridge abduction remains one of the most well-documented alien abductions in UFOlogy. And that's my story. So and, I want to know what you think about it. Uh, so what do I think about it? I, I think it's real. I, I think... You think it all really, really happened? I believe so. I think people kind of sh- like poo-pooed it. Because like, poo-poo. <laughs> like oh aliens poo poo no um <laughs> okay <laughs> I think I think people like kind of just explained it away and yeah. just kind of like oh it's not it's not aliens that's it's whatever you know my car was just having trouble so it was everyone else's car on this bridge no but if that happens if you've seen an episode of the X Files you know it's aliens yeah it's it, it's always aliens I mean they're out there so. yeah so i i I think there there is some discrepancies like i'm not gonna lie but i think i think overall there's enough evidence to suggest that something happened and that 
aliens were involved and it shouldn't be discounted just because some people witnessed it and other people didn't it's aliens bro yeah bro so my references are tricksterbook.com liveabout.com and lindacortalcase.com well thanks yeah thank you i know more now and knowing's half the battle speaking of knowing is half the battle did you know about the small town secrets podcast <gasps> tell me more oh well they are a part of the straight up strange productions family and so are we and so they're one of our fam members and so the small town secrets podcast is a podcast that explores the strangeness of small towns because every small town has a secret and they've covered episodes about Amityville and a bunch of small towns across the U S and it's super interesting. It's definitely worth a listen. And we actually have a promo for them right now. Yeah, we're back. Just like that. In a flash. All right, so now it's time for my story. Yes. It's my turn. So I'm just going to warn you now, if you hear any clinking around or like a dog sneezing, it's because we're in the super professional setup of our office at our apartment. <laughs> and I am having to chill out with my dog on the couch so she doesn't lose her shit. You know. Dog life. <laughs> She keeps looking over at me like, are you talking about me? <laughs> so I am talking about the old Idaho penitentiary. Ooh. Have you heard of it? Do they store all the prisoners with the potatoes? Huh. 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 <laughs> I'm so strong with the dad jokes. <laughs> okay. So here's a picture. We'll have them up on our social medias. It's a very uh, non-ominous looking picture of this prison. I can't tell if you're being facetious. No, I'm not. <laughs> like, it, it looked friendly-ish. I think it's the flowers. Yeah, it's like clear Some blue sky. It's like clear blue sky. You know, flowers, grass is green. But, like, everyone's in bars. 
I want to be in a bar right now. Do you? No, not really. <laughs> This is located in Boise, Idaho. It was built in 1870. It functioned as a prison from 1872 to 1973. A long fucking time, yeah? Yeah. So, the first building was... Uh, known as a territorial prison because it was built 15 years before Idaho was even a state. Oh. Yeah. Dang. The prison used uh, used the prisoners as free laborers to build the rest of the prison. Because why not? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was like the 1800s, but the prison system was a sham. Um. <laughs> so the quote unquote New cell house was built in 1889, and the third cell building was built in 1899. That building later was cut in half to make uh, what's known now as cell house two and cell house three. The prison, of course, had no electricity, so it was freezing in the winters and sweltering in the summers. And the stone was like limestone, and apparently it keeps in the heat like an oven. Oh, so it insulates. Yeah. Mm, That sounds fun. It sounds stinkier. (laughs) (laughs) so in the 1920s cell house one was improved guess how they put in window units they (laughs) added plumbing oh so they didn't have plumbing before no did they just have like a hole or buckets (laughs) a bucket (laughs) oh no that's terrible yeah in 1923 a multi-purpose building was built and it served as a a communal shower area a license plate factory, a shirt factory, a shoe shop, a hobby area, and a bakery. Wow. After a riot, which I'll talk about later, William Butler was found beaten and stabbed, then rolled up in a gym mat here. Oh, well, I am William Butler was a prisoner here. Um, By 1926, they had constructed 12 eight by three cells that served as solitary confinement. Wow. The, pr- uh, the prisoners nicknamed it Siberia. Prisoners that went to Siberia were only fed once a day and were allowed showers only once a week. So, why was it called Siberia? I don't know. Because, like, I don't know. Probably because, like, people think that you're alone out in Siberia. I guess so. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I, guess, I don't know. Can you stop asking questions I don't know the answer to? <laughs> That'd be great. Thanks. The only light that they had came in through, like, the little holes, the little slits that they got their food from. Mm, Okay. So it's super dark. Yeah. You only shower once a week, and you only get fed once a day. Jesus. Yeah. The state later built Cell House 4 in 1952. Then in 1954, Cell House 5 was built, and it was a maximum security building that included hanging uh, for the death row inmates. Wow. Before Cell House 5, there were uh, gallows where prisoners uh, were hanged, and the gallows were taken down permanently in 1934 because the warden thought that it lowered young prisoners' morale. Well, no shit. <laughs> oh, because um, they were, like, right in the center, and so, like, all of the cell houses could watch. Yeah, if I'm yeah. watching people getting hung, like, I don't, I don't know how often, but... Okay, so to be fair... You know, we're in Texas where they like to execute people left and right. Mm-hmm. Um, there, I think there's only been 11. Yeah, there's only been 11 executions in Idaho and 10 happened at this prison. Oh, wow. So we're, we're looking at like 
95% of, <laughs> of the executions in this one case. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, but 11. Wow. And 10 of them happened here, and this prison was only open for 100 years. Wow. That's wild. That's crazy. So, um... Death row fun fact of the day. <laughs> now a rose garden takes the place of the gallows. Okay, interesting. And the and the rose garden is a business. Like I forgot the nursery's name, but it's for a business. Mm-hmm. And the prisoners, well, before it was closed down, the prisoners would um tend to the garden. Mm, okay. Yeah. The old Idaho penitentiary housed both men and women. They were equal equal opportunity. More than thirteen thousand, more than thirteen thousand prisoners have passed through the doors of the old Idaho penitentiary. Of the thirteen thousand prisoners, two hundred and fifteen of them were women, and one hundred and ten died here. Wow. Yeah. Uh, Like mentioned earlier, two prison riots happened in the penitentiaries a hundred years. The first one was in nineteen seventy one, and then. A more severe riot in 1973, causing the prison to close down. And the riots were, um, after the riots, the prisoners were moved to a more modern prison. But during the second riot, the church and the dining hall was burned to the ground. Wow. Yeah. So with all of this, no wonder that it's haunted. <laughs> of course. Yeah. They burned a church down. For real. <laughs> <laughs> See, I'm more concerned about the dining hall. <laughs> <laughs> you see where my uh see where your your uh attention lies. Yeah. Um visitors have reported sudden painful headaches and seeing red floating lights when they are in the rose garden. Which, you know, is where people were. So like like orbs? Mm, yeah, but like red orbs. Hmm. That's ominous. <laughs> yeah. And I think I read that five people were hanged at the gallows. Um. Yeah. So there's also a ghost of a prisoner that hangs out in the garden. He said to not bother uh, visitors. And most visitors just think that he's an employee that's dressed in prisoner clothing. I guess like to reenact something. Okay. But if no one else is dressed like a prisoner... (laughs) Why would you think this one person that's dressed as a prisoner works there? I would think the opposite. I would think that, oh, someone just broke the fuck out and he's just hanging out well, on his flowers. The prison, the prison isn't. I know the prison isn't oh, like there. From another like, prison. I, yeah, I'm thinking like, oh, someone just broke out of prison and they're over here taking a minute to smell the flowers. So, so you know, take a moment, smell the flowers. You know, they're pull, having their Ferris Bueller's day off. <laughs> um, so Milton and I went to San Francisco on our honeymoon and we visited Alcatraz. And if there was someone dressed in prisoner garb, I don't think I would think ghost or prisoner outbreak. I would just think that someone is super excited to visit Alcatraz and like dressed up for that. Yeah, event. in that case I would too. <laughs> because like I mean Alcatraz was a big deal. Yeah. To to some people. Well, to most people. It was to me till I visited it. <laughs> and so Yo, like, I was I, very let down. I would assume I was that, also very high. Yeah, that too. Uh fun fact, don't eat a bunch of edibles at one time. Don't um, But yeah, I would assume if someone's like super excited about being Alcatraz, they would dress up. They would co- cosplay. Is it is it cosplay <laughs> at that point? <laughs> I think so. <laughs> I would assume so. Um when someone would dress up 
and be like, oh, I'm going, I'm, I'm playing Al Pacino or, you know, someone that, someone that was at, you know, at Alcatraz. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, life update. Our dog is trying to eat my foot. So, cell yeah. block four. Oh, sorry. I said Al Pacino. Totally meant Al Capone. <laughs> Al I didn't even catch you. Yeah. I was like, wait, no, that's not right. Al Capone is, um, fuck, what's that one? Al Pacino is a Scarface. No, no, no. Al Capone haunts that one, um, of oh, that, that, uh, cell block isn't it doesn't he have like a cell and he yeah. has like a bar or something like no. that there's like a no god dog it I, all i can have all i have in my head right now is rikers and trans allegheny hold on please hold al capone prison don't edit any of this out <laughs> where where was he everybody's like what was he jailed for? I don't give a fuck what he was jailed for. I mean, like, not right now. That's not my question. <laughs> oh, Pennsylvania, uh, Pennsylvania, Philadelphia, Eastern State Penitentiary. That's where he had his cell block. This. Right. Yeah, and they made a bar out of it. Oh, did they? Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah, they did. Oh, uh, Al Capone actually also served at Alcatraz. Yes, he did. Yeah. <laughs> The more you know. I think I learned that that day. And then I forgot. Like I said, I was very high. <laughs> um, so, cell block form might be the most notorious building of the prison. That's because it made national headlines when Douglas Van Vlack. Douglas Van Vlack, who had been convicted of premeditated murder of his ex-wife and killing two policemen. Unprem- like, not premeditated. Uh, jumped from a beam. 30 foot high onto a concrete floor the night before he was to be hanged. Jeez. Yeah. So how it happened, how he was able to get out was that he, you get to, he got to get blessed by the priest. Priest. Yeah. yeah. That guy. He got to get blessed by the priest and say his last goodbye to his mom and dad. And um, supposedly his mom like whispered something in her, in his ear as he was leaving. And the guard was putting him into the, cell and he like pushed past the guard and jumped oh wow yeah so before jumping he yelled i have the right to choose the way i die so apparently his mom it's been said that his mom uh whispered in his ear that you have the right to choose and she um like slipped him a straight uh straight blade oh yeah dang that's cool that's kind of i don't know that's weird yeah <laughs> Um, before jumping, he, uh, yeah, I read that the prison guards rolled him onto a mattress and this was in the 1930s. So I guess they didn't take him to the hospital. Um, the prisoners, the prison guards rolled him onto the mattress and then he was pronounced dead at 1232 AM, December 10th, 1937. His scheduled execution was for 12 AM, December 10th. So, so he jumped from, from where? Was it the second? Is it a second level? Uh, I no, it was a beam, but it was thirty foot up. It was thirty feet up. Okay, so yeah, I'm assuming he'd be. No, he was still alive. He was still alive. Yeah, that's why they rolled him onto and the mattress. They rolled him onto a mattress mm-hmm. and covered him in a sheet. So it was supposed to be like a, a gurney, a gurney. Yeah, I guess. Oh, okay. That but they didn't sense. take him to the hospital. They just like let him die. 
They were like, well, he's supposed to be executed anyways. Yeah. I'm that's, assuming. Oh, that's, that's, that's sad. Yeah. Um, I mean, 30 foot's not that high to jump from. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So, um, but, so he was supposed to be executed at 12 a.m. So he lived about 30 minutes longer than what he would have. Yelling is often reported being heard here, and overall heaviness uh, is be- is reported when you walk in, which I could understand that. Yeah, definitely. Uh, cell Block 5 also has many reports of paranormal activity. Most visitors report feeling heaviness or an overwhelming sadness when they enter. Honestly, like, as soon as you enter this prison, apparently you feel like an overwhelming heaviness. Okay. It doesn't surprise me. Like, yeah. it's a prison. Um... When you visit cell block five, most people get a sense that they're being watched. If you remember from earlier, cell block five is where they moved the hangings after the gallows were disassembled. However, only one hanging took place here, and that was of Raymond Snowden, a.k.a. Idaho's Jack the Ripper. Oh. Yeah. Didn't you know that Idaho had one? The hash sling slasher? (laughs) Um, Snowden was convicted of murdering Cora Dean. After he followed her out of a club called the High Ho Club. <laughs> I, I don't know. I just found that name funny. The High Ho. I just now like I'm thinking about Snow White when they're like, Hi Ho. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so he murdered her in the back alley behind the club. Dang. Yeah. He was to be hanged in cell block five on October 18th, 1957. The room had a glass window so that people like the the victim's family and like the garden stuff could watch and the prisoners be hanged. But once the noose was placed around Snowden's neck, the lever was pulled for, uh, for the trap door to fall from under his feet. However, the trap door opening caused the glass window to shatter because it was like so aggressive and the noose was not strong enough to break Snowden's neck, so he was uh, slowly strangled and pronounced dead after 15 minutes. Oh, no. Yeah. Oh, that's terrible. Could you imagine watching that? Yeah. Um, many visitors have heard noises that sound like someone is gasping for air in this area, and full-bodied apparitions of Snowden have been seen lurking around after dusk. Oh, that's creepy. Yeah. And that is the old Idaho penitentiary and its spirits. Damn, you end on that one? That's <laughs> so creepy. Oh, my God. <laughs> to be fair, I was going in order of the cell blocks. <laughs> um, also, if you're in the area and you want to check it out, they have reopened. They allow f- 50 visitors per hour. Don't forget to wear a mask. And my references are thedeadhistory.com, history.idaho.gov, hauntedrooms.com and idahoarchitectureproject.org wow yeah so good such a good story yeah that was so oh that's a that was intense for for a few moments there i'm sorry no it's fine i enjoyed (laughs) it i mean it was all part of the story i brought you a little true crime and some spirits there you go hey trying to already trying to change it up on you episode two So, yeah, so I hope that y'all liked it. Don't forget to check us out on Twitter at H-E-H podcast and Instagram at happily ever haunted podcast. Also, don't forget to rate and review us on your favorite podcast apps. Rate, like, review. Yes. We love to hear you guys' feedback. 
and you know just tell us if you love the show and if there's anything you want to see change just let us know yeah just remember we're on episode two we're trying here yeah <laughs> we're growing yeah taking it every day so we hope that y'all have a great week and we will see y'all next week and remember those that haunt together stay together This podcast is a part of Straight Up Strange Productions. Discover more shows like this one at straightupstrange.com.